All right, so that is scene one and scene two of, of the book of Jonah. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little disclaimer ahead of time. Feedback as I as I start uh, this passage, we're gonna we're gonna start off talking about um, some ancient sort of Near East philosophies that the men on the boat would have had. Um, some ideas that that maybe the ancient Jews in Jonah's time. A few things that we're, we're fixing. We're, we're working every week on fixing the sound and the lights because I can't see, so I have a little light. So we're getting better. Don't worry. New building, you know. You've got to get the gremlins out. Um, <clears throat> all right. So we're going to talk about some ancient areas of philosophy. We're going to talk about a little bit of history um, of all of this. Um, we're going to talk about how the people would have viewed the symbolism of the storm, the boat, all of this stuff. And then we're going to get into um, a bit of a... Of a um, a literary device that, that whoever wrote the book of Jonah that they used when they wrote it that's really amazing, really brilliant. And they do it all for a reason, and we're going to get to all these reasons. So at first you're going to hear this for a while, and you're going to be like, where is this going? It's going somewhere. Stay with me. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then let's get into this. Father, we love you. Um, we come to hear you speak. Um, I ask that this morning that we would hear something that we need to hear, that we would... Um, be able to find some truth that we've been missing um, from your word and be able to submit to it. Um, I ask that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us as we trek through these sometimes very difficult books. Um, Thank you so much for preserving these writings for thousands of years so that we could sit here in this room and we could study them and read them and, and get into the mindset of the people in that day who were following you in the same way that we are today. And um, let us find what we should take into our culture today and exercise it. Um, change us, God. In your name, amen. All right. <clears throat> so it's, we're going to echo and feedback for a few minutes. Everything got reset, and we're working on it. So don't worry about it. Um, so scene one closes with Jonah running from God. Um, and he boards this ship towards a place called Tarshish. Like we talked about last week, it is a place that is away from the presence of the Lord. It is... Um, that Jonah was considered, considered it away from the presence of the Lord. It was as far in the opposite direction as the city of Nineveh, where he was commanded to go, as you could possibly get in that day on the map. Um, there was no city that they knew of that was farther. There were other cities, but the, the, the people in this, in this empire would not have known about it. Um, so I, I ask a few questions as I read this, and go ahead and throw the first um, page up here. Um, I had to separate this into three pages because it's a very long text, but it starts off, um, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Um, we're going to get to this in a second. What was Jonah doing on this ship? Why did he believe that he could... That's going to stop, right? We don't, we don't have a sound guy, do we? Oh, well, whatever. Um, why did Jonah believe that he could run away from the presence of God? What was it about... I mean... Today, when we think about this, there's, there's no way possible that any of us would possibly believe that we could just run from the presence of God. That We, we have these beliefs and doctrines about God. He's omnipotent. Uh, he's, he's omniscient. He's, uh, he's omnipresent. And uh, there's no possible way that any of us could get up and run from the presence of God, even if we wanted to. Yet Jonah tries to do this. So there's something about his thinking that, um, that we're missing. Because I don't think any of us would, would, would possibly think that we could do this. So there's this idea uh, back in the days in ancient near, uh, antiquity times that was called localized deities. And I've talked about this before, but just a refresher. Um, every nation believed that they, that, that they had their own god, 
and that their God had certain abilities and strengths, and they were watching over them. If you were in the desert, you would worship a desert God. If you were in the plains, it was very fertile land, you would worship the God of fertility. Uh, if you were on the ocean, you would worship Yam or um, you know, one of those gods. Um, and each, pers- each country, each tribe, each nation had their own gods that they would worship. Um, and so Jonah sort of, I don't know why, and, and it's hard to get into his mind, but for some reason... He was acting as if he had some sort of localized deity. He was fleeing from where he believed God was. He believed his God was just the God of the nation of Israel. We could see that at the beginning in scene one, where he doesn't even want to go to the people of Nineveh because they were so evil and they were so, um, he had so much hatred for them. And he didn't believe God wanted to save them. He believed God cared only about his nation. So he runs from his nation, believing that God would stay there and he would run and, and, and he'd get away from God. So he, he believes sort of, he, he's sort of flirting with this idea of localized deities. Um, so, and, and this is an interesting part, because this might play with you a little bit with your brain, and you'll probably think about this for a while, but most of us tend to look at the Israelites, um, and, they, and we assume that they had the same beliefs about God that we do. In other words, um, that there was one God and there was no other gods in the whole world. We, we tend to, in other words, think that they were, for the most part, monotheistic. Um, a lot in scriptures would argue that they struggled with the idea of monotheism. They were coming out, when they were, when they were called by God, they were coming out of living in a world where no one believed in monotheism. In other words, that there's one God, and that's all. Um, <clears throat> and so I imagine that they struggled with this idea that there was only one God. How could there only be one God? There's all these different things going on in the world. Um, all these different places, and there's all these different miraculous things that, that go on in other countries. How could there possibly only be one God? Um, and you can see that they struggled with this, and as time goes on, um, you tend to see them accept this more and more and more and more as you, as you work your way through the Old and into the New Testament to the point where they fully accepted that there's only one God and everything else is idols. But as you watch the children of Israel, you tend to see them um, chasing after other gods, worshipping idols, constantly um, worshipping Baal and, and Asherah and all these other gods. And you're like, if you're a monotheistic person, if you don't believe that that God even exists or that they're real, why in the world would you even bother worshipping them or why would you be tempted to go worship another God? Obviously, they struggled with this idea of there only being one God, and they were working on it. They were getting there um, over time. It, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, so, and, and this is actually what you see in, jo- in Jonah's response here. Okay, look at, um, read with me all the way to, okay, where are we at here? Four, four, five, six. Um, read with me right here, starting in verse five. Uh, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. There was probably 60 or 70 people on this boat. Um, that's what um, theologians kind of say. Um, they, and they all cried out to their own gods. There were probably 70 different gods being worshipped at this point, being called out to for salvation. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone out to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was asleep. So Jonah is not even praying. Jonah's oblivious and Jonah's unaware. Um, and then the captain comes to him and wakes him up. Go ahead to the next slide for me. Look with me at verse 9, right over here. Um, at some point, they come and they wake him up and they say, you're not praying to your God. Why aren't you praying to your God? We've called out to all the gods that we can think of and none of them are saving us. Um, obviously, somebody's not praying and they cast lots and they find it's him. And here's his response. He says this after they ask him who he is. Um, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he's claiming, he stands up and he, claims, he says, you know what? You know who my God is? I'm a Hebrew. My God made the land that your God rules over. My God made the sea that your God rules over. Everything that you guys, um, all these gods that you're worshiping, my God is greater than all of them, and he is above them all. He is more powerful than all of them. And, and if, you're, if you have a God that has any power, it's because my God gave it to him, and, and my God created everything that your God is over. 
Okay, so he's, he's saying, okay, you all have your gods, and this is cute, but I, I worship Yahweh. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. All right, so it's, it's, it's this big proclamation. So you see him here sort of pushing back against their praying to all these gods, all right? And it's fascinating. Um, and, and look at their response when he says this, because it's awesome. Um, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They were terrified because all of a sudden he had just given them some information about his God that they did not have. Oh, his God is Yahweh. His God is the God who created everything. We actually have someone here whose personal God is Yahweh. They had heard about this God. They had heard that there was a God who was above all the other gods who had created everything. And, and um, they probably had never met one, a person who was a member of, of Yahweh's nation. All right, and it says, the men were exceedingly afraid because all of a sudden they have no power. Nothing that they believe in can possibly save them from what they're going through here. All right? So, um, at this point, I'm going um, to pause because what you see is they all believe, they're crying out to all these different gods, and you kind of um, get the idea that, that, that they believe that some god was responsible for this storm. Well, of course they believe that. Um, if you ever read about the folklore of of storms on the seas in ancient times. It's pretty fascinating. Um, it's universally acknowledged in, in ancient times that any survivor of any storm um, was graced by the gods. It was a big gift. Um, the gods obviously had something special for you if you survived a storm on the high seas. And, and this is fascinating because you can find like five or six different historical sources, um, Horace and, and, um, and Josephus and a bunch of other guys, who actually say that survivors of storms in those days on the seas when they survived, they would carve their story on a piece of plate, and they would wear the plate around their neck, and they would walk throughout the cities with this plate on their neck. So if you see somebody with a plate on their neck, you'd be like, hey, hey, come here. This guy survived a storm on the seas. And you would go up to him, and you would ask him his story. Um, and th- this, is, this is referenced like all over the place, this is, and this fascinated me when I heard this, and I was trying to find a picture of one of them, but apparently we don't have any of them. We've never seen any of them. They don't exist anymore, but we have lots of mentions of them in history. Um, and if you're wearing one of these plates, people would constantly come up to you and ask you about your story and ask you what the gods had in store for you, what you believed, where they were leading you. And then um, they would usually give you money, a coin of some type. So you're wearing this plate and you're walking around the city and people are giving you coins and asking you about your story. All right? You instantly have the rest of your life you can make a living. And, and people welcomed this because they wanted people, they wanted to meet these people and, and they wanted to sort of fund them so they could, because they were obviously on the, work, on the mission doing the work of a god. And this is fascinating to me. Um, so, there's lots of mythology about, about storms and high seas because they believed um, they were always controlled um, by God. Um, the water itself. Um, any Jew reading the story of Jonah or listening to the story of Jonah would be fascinated that Jonah got in a boat. Um, and there's lots of reasons for this. Uh, perhaps you've heard this before. Um, the Jews were not seafaring people at all. They were not. Um, Typically, they were, they were desert nomads. In all of their history, um, they have always considered the sea a terrifying thing. The Sea of Galilee. Um, they, just, they, they did not go near or on bodies of water. They were, they were terrified of the water. It's, it was a theological thing. Um, in all of their history, they very rarely ever controlled or lived on the sea coast. The sea, in general, had this very negative connotation as you read throughout their theology in the scriptures. Um, and really, it may be in part to do with the fact that, that they, they have a background in the desert. Um, uh, the background of the Israelite is, is, is fully devoted to the desert there. 
um, and the wilderness and wandering in that. To them, the sea probably appeared really alien and threatening. Um, and as a reminder of these cultural stories depicting the sea as this monstrous beast, as a place where Baal went to do battle with Yam, the sea god. Um, I don't... I have a lot of... Okay. Okay. Sea gremlins. We're working on it. Um, Whatever the reason the Bible uses, for whatever reason the Bible uses all this imagery in, uh, of, of the sea in a really less than positive way. And, and the Jews believed, actually, um, you can see a lot of places through scriptures and their reactions when they're on the seas and the storms. The Jews believed um, that the, the water was the abyss and they were terrified a lot of times to go on the water. And I'm going to give you lots of scripture references for this. Um, I have a slide here. Um, next one. Next one. One more. All right. Um, I have a lot of things here. If you want to like, write some of these down and go look at them, it's pretty fascinating if you want to research this further. Uh, Genesis 1, um, we have the beginning of the world described as this watery chaos, a primeval sea. And then, in, and then it talks about, in Psalm 24, about, about God's creation. God creates the land and he, he sets it on top of the sea on these pillars. All right? um, it's this description of, of how God sort of controls and, and, and created everything. It, it's, really, it's really brilliant. Um, in the scriptures, the flooding waters of the sea were always a, usually a tool of God's judgment. You have the story of the flood. You have all these other places um, in, in, in Genesis, Exodus, and Psalms. Um, now, um, if you go down to like Isaiah 27, you see that, that the sea was home to this terrible dragon, Leviathan, that they write about, um, which came to symbolize the pagan nations opposing Israel. There's actually a passage in Revelation that refers to um, the pagan nations as Leviathan and the beast rising out of the sea. Every time you see the sea, especially in the book of Revelation, you see it as a place where, um, metaphorically, there was, there, was, there was evil there. All right? Um, and Daniel's description has this great beast of the sea and the terror they spread. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of references from the New Testament and Jesus himself, too. Remember when Jesus was walking on the sea towards his disciples in the boat during the storm? You might remember this. Um, He's walking on the sea towards them. I have that scripture. Go to the next slide for me. Let's read this. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's probably like really, really early in the morning, too. Um, he, he, came by to the, he, he came to them walking on the sea. And this is great. He meant to pass by them. We like to think that he was walking out to see them. He wasn't. He was just taking a walk, okay? <laughs> he was just out for a stroll on the, on the sea. Um, verse 49. Um, but when they saw him on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Okay, why did they think it was a ghost? Why not a person? Why, not, why didn't they instantly say, we, we look at that and we'd be like, oh, that's Jesus. He's walking on the water and nobody else does that. Um, but they thought it was a ghost and they cried out and were terrified, for they all saw him and were terrified. Um, and, and, and this is fascinating as you read Jewish literature. Once you get this in your, in your mind and you, you're reading... You see places where they're always terrified of the sea. Um, only the bravest of the brave worked on the sea as fishermen. Um, it's pretty fascinating. So um, the fact that Jonah, the fact that, that the fact that Jonah got in a boat to leave from the presence of the Lord, there's a lot of more reasons why he thought he could get away from the presence of God. Localized deities, um, the abyss below him, all these reasons he gets on the boat to sail away. It's pretty fascinating. Um, um, you even see. Um, Oh, I'm going to stop. There's so many examples. I could go all day. Ask me later. I've got a lot more. Um, in, in ancient times, they had this respect for the sea. And if you died at sea, what they believed was you were paying for your sins that you had committed long before you set foot on that boat. Uh, you see this in, in, in Homer's Odyssey. There's a man named Odysseus. Um, and he, 
Odysseus has this really brazen crew, and they're very, very brave. And he writes about this really brazen crew and the fate that was awaiting them on the boat before they got on the boat. And it was because of the sins that they had committed. There was all this going on back then. So, look at verse 4 and 5 with me. Um, verse 4 and 5 says this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship um, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and has laid down fast asleep. So, like I said in verse 4 and 5, once they realized um, the storm that was upon them, they all started crying out to their God, and each person was was terrified that their God was out to destroy them. So they meet Jonah, they go down, they wake him up. Um, and Jonah, as they find, is, is sleeping below deck, and the captain wakes him up and asks him this question. He says this, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, and perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And this was before he even knew who Jonah's God was. And so it's only after all the other gods have been exhausted that they go to Jonah, they wake him up, they assume someone has got to be not praying, and we're going to find out who it is, and they wake him up. All right, so... Um, and before we really get into all the theological implications of all this, there's one more thing I want to point out to you. I want to take it here a moment uh, to talk about this literary device that he uses in chapter 1, which is pretty fascinating. Go to the next slide for me. One more. All right, so... Oh, okay, hold on. This is, this is what we call casting lots. This is lots. Um, this is how they knew that it was Jonah. Casting lots was always a way to um, sort of invoke the gods. They don't know the answer to something, so they would sort of... Um, ask God, okay, you're, gonna be, you're the God of everything, so we're going to cast lots. It's our only way of asking you what's going on. And they put something in their, in their lap, sort of a whole... They, they get all these pebbles, and they maybe write people's names on them or number them, and they all represent somebody. And they put them in their lap, and there's certainly several ways to do this. Um, but it says here that they did it from their lap, and, and, and they would shake it until one came out. Um, and apparently Jonah's lot came out. Okay, so go to the next slide for me. Because he does this amazing literary device. Now, this looks really jumbled for a second. Let me explain what's going on. Um... The climax of this entire scene, too, um, is the place where Jonah speaks. Now, when Jonah speaks, it is the very first time in the entire book that Jonah speaks, and the words Jonah says are very, very important, and they're very telling. Um, so, they cast lots, they wake him up, and I'm going to read this to you. Um, they had, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon you. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And, what, and of what people are you? And verse 9 says, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. <clears throat> the very first words Jonah has for them, I am a Hebrew. He stands up and he proclaims where he comes from, the very, very important place that he thought he came from. I am a Hebrew. All right? Um, now, before he says, I am a Hebrew, there's 94 words exactly to the beginning of the scene. Um, after he says, I am a Hebrew, there's another 94 words in the Hebrew, not in English. Um, the central focus, this is, this, is, um, this is a very normal thing um, that they would do. It's a, it's a, it's a structure that would happen a lot. Um, uh, Mark did it in the Gospel of Mark. Um, um, Jonah actually does it two or three times. And the whole point they do this is, is the Hebrews would, would, would um, as they're reading or as they're listening, they would pick up on this. It builds this structure. It says something, says something else, says something else, says something else. And then there's a climax of it. And then it sort of repeats everything backwards. So you see A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D. They're all very similar. And there is a center, a centerpiece. And they always have the exact same amount of words. <clears throat> the whole point of doing all this is so that the very climax of the entire story is at the peak of the structure, of the literary structure here. So the Lord hurls a storm. <clears throat> and it ends with, 
the sailors hurling Jonah, the sna- the, and the storm ends. So the, Lord, the storm comes, the Lord hurls it. The storm ends when they hurl Jonah. Um, the sailors act and pray, and, and at the end here, uh, the sailors act and, and pray again. Um, and then Jonah acts, and he lies down, and then Jonah speaks. Um, the captain and the sailors ask questions, and then the sailors ask questions to Jonah. It is all the same. It repeats, and it works its way up to this climax at the very middle, where Jonah stands up and says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord God, the maker of all the land and all the seas. This is what you're supposed to focus on. <clears throat> you're supposed to contemplate, why did he say this? Why is he speaking this way? What is the mindset with which he is speaking? As you are listening to this story, this is incredibly important uh, in the ancient Hebrew to get this. All right? So, the obvious focus of all this, Jonah's word, the, po- the point that the writer is trying to make is, 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 Jonah stands up and the first thing he says is, the first thing he says is not the answer to the question that they actually want. They want to know what God is it that is hurling down this storm on them. What can they do to appease this God? And then they sort of ask him, where are you from? Um, Who are you? Jonah starts with the answer, I am a Hebrew. He first tells him who he is, which to Jonah is the most important thing that there is to say because he is a Hebrew and he's proud of it. And he's, to him, his nation is greater than every other nation. Oh, thank you very much. Greater than every other nation on the face of the earth. And so he stands up and he says, I'm a Hebrew. And Yahweh is my God. The thing that he puts first is the most important thing to him. He wants them, first and foremost, before he does anything to help them, to understand who he is and how important he is. <clears throat> okay, so, the first question they ask him is, by whose account did this song come? And that's the last question that he answers. And then the first answer that he gives to them is the last question that they asked him. All right? And the point that writer is trying to make here is that they're on this... Okay, now put this all together. They're on a boat in the middle of the abyss, about to die about to be dragged down to what they think is some kind of hell, and their gods aren't saving them. And one man, whose God can save them, has not asked his God to do so, nor is he concerned that they are all about to die. And above all else, he wants the sailors to know that he is a Hebrew. Jonah has a huge problem. He does not care about the situation that anyone around him is in, He does not care that they are all about to be thrown into the abyss of hell. He does not care um, that they're worshiping false gods that do not exist. All he cares about is letting them know how great he is, how great his people are, and how great his God is. And it's not about his God. It's all about him. Are you following this? Now, I want to argue that Jonah's situation and our situation are very similar. We live in a world filled with people who are on the verge of destruction. They're crying out to their gods to be saved. Um, And I don't know how many times we're told that um, we hear community leaders stand up and we hear all these people standing up with the best of possible intentions trying to save the sinking ship that is the world and humanity. And they say things like, this program, if we start this program, it's going to help stop abuses of these people. Or, or we could end all inequality and injustice around us if we had just enacted this government policy or that government policy. Um, or if everyone got on board with this idea or, or if we spread these ideas like gospel. Or even, if you want to stop this crime and this oppression, then we need this idea or that idea to take root in people's hearts. Now, we hear this everywhere we go. And I don't know how many times we've heard these things and we just kind of smile and laugh. Unconcerned, sort of. Now, we don't realize how little concern we have. But really, less than concerned. 
Because we believe in the sovereignty of God who will work everything out in the end. And we are not concerned with the things that the people are proclaiming or even getting involved to help. Um, In the same way that Jonah did not get involved, he wouldn't pray. All of these things, these ideas that people have that will make humanity better, that will fix things, that will um, solve injustice and poverty, all of these things are God's. They are things that they believe that they, think about it. They're, they're things that they believe in without saying that they have faith will work if we trust in them. Um, they give worth to them, and we know that the idea of worship comes from the idea from the word worthship um, in, in the old English when we translate it over. Um, <clears throat> they're oftentimes very localized ideas, localized deities, gods, if you will. Um, these people believe in what will work for them. These people believe in what will work for them. But nobody believes that there's this overarching idea that if everyone in the world would embrace, would make everything better. People just don't believe this. But Christians do. We do. Um, They're oftentimes very powerful things that they believe in. These local deities that people have. They're very powerful things, and and oftentimes they're actually good things. Um, And you and I kind of hold to something that is a little different. Um, We believe in an absolute authority. Something that is a framework in which all other truths exist. Okay? Um, Examples. Examples. We believe that poverty is rooted in sinful actions of people, and when the gospel penetrates society, that God deals with sin through sanctification, causing us to be more loving and more more merciful and more generous and more like Christ. In other words, we believe that the answer to poverty is the gospel, because of what comes with it. Generosity, mercy, grace. Um, We believe that... All of creation is created for the purpose of worshiping Jesus, the Messiah. And if you have this idea and you center your life around it, then you're not going to be addicted to substances, but you will use alcohol and medications and things like this in ways that, that worship God and not your appetites. In other words, the answer to um, alcohol abuse, um, substance abuses, addictions, is the gospel. Because it teaches you that we don't find our pleasure and our joy in creation. And by abusing creation, we believe everything is created for a purpose and a reason. Wine is not to be used uh, for drunkenness. It is to be used for things, beautiful things like communion. Um, or in moderation as a form of worship. Um, in other words, what I'm trying to say, the big picture, is that your God, the God that you believe in, the God who's given us the gospel is above all other gods. And if they would worship him, these local things that we want to happen would take root and they would be fixed. But oftentimes, we don't look at our God that way, as a God who actually wants to embedder society, make the world a better place, or, or do things for anybody. We think it's about us and our personal salvation, and that's all, and it ends there. All right? The gospel is the answer to the problems that their gods cannot fix But so often when the storm is raging and they're crying out to their gods to fix them and their gods aren't fixing it, we're asleep in the bottom of the boat. And oftentimes Christians are much more concerned with what they are than who it is that they serve. We want to stand up and and proclaim to the world, I am a Christian. I want you to know who I am and how good I am. And I'm constantly working to better myself and become more moral and more pious. And we never actually get the gospel out. The gospel never actually does any physical work for anything. It never actually does anything of substance. It's just an idea. Um, 
God doesn't love you more than those around you. These are things Jonah needed to hear. God doesn't love you more than he loves people around you. He does not approve of your level of morality more than he approves of others. Think about that. He doesn't approve of your level of morality any more than he approves of anyone else's. We are all equal. We're all sinners. All in need of grace. No matter how moral you think you are, you're not better. God does not care about your nation more than any other nation on this earth. For every need of man, for every need that man has, every hurt, every problem, there is an attribute of God that has been neglected in us. For every need that there is, every pain that you are suffering, everything you are going through, everything society is suffering from, there is an attribute of God that we have not taken and, and given to the world. Whether it be mercy, generosity, reconciliation, there is something that we are neglecting in the image of God. We were created to be His image bearers. When we are ungraceful, injustice comes about. When we are unmerciful, poverty rises. When we are unloving, racism and bigotry well up all around us. When we are unforgiving, our families and friendships and relationships erode underneath us. All of these are attributes of God that need to be applied. The solution is never to run around telling people how great Christianity is. The solution is to proclaim the gospel and to exercise the gospel in everything that we do. In the New Testament Gospels, the story of Jonah actually gets retold. Um, Only it ends a little differently. All right, there's a place in Matthew chapter 12. Go to the next slide for me. It says this, and this is Jesus talking. He answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's talking about himself. Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is always comparing himself with the figures in the Old Testament, saying, um, they represented something great, but they all pointed to me and I represent something better. Normally we would think of this as arrogant, except it's not arrogant if it's true. Um, <clears throat> so I want to I point to you some similarities. Go to the next slide for me. Um, and think about this as we're reading it. Jonah's asleep in a boat. The boat enters a terrifying storm. Jonah is awakened by people believing that he can save them. Think about what this is, can be compared to. The storm is stopped by a divine intervention. And Jonah tells them that through his death, they can be saved. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the abyss. Jonah is set free from the abyss. And the city is saved when his message of repentance is preached. Stop me if you've heard this before. I've said this before and I'll say it a million times. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Everything. Only the story of Jesus ends right. When Jesus gave himself to the Sanhedrin to be killed and buried for three days and then he rose again to bring salvation, he took on the role of Jonah. All right? If you read Mark's, um, Luke, uh, I mean Mark's account of, of Jesus asleep in the boat, he purposely structures it just like Jonah to make a point. All right, it's fascinating. Um, the stories of Jonah and Jesus are not really all that different when you stand back and look at them, except for Jonah suffered for himself. 
for his cause, for his identity, and for the love of himself. And Jesus suffered and died willingly because he loved the world and everyone in it. So we have, the, so we have Jesus showing us once again, once again, over and over and over, Jesus shows us um, that he is better. In Hebrews, he is the better priest, able to bring full atonement for the sins of the world by his own sacrifice. In, in the Gospels, he's a better king than King David or Solomon or anybody because he's able to understand the needs and the sufferings of the people because he became one of them. And he endured every human suffering that has ever been endured. In Mark, he's a better prophet, better than Jonah, because he's able to proclaim a message that he knows is true because only he has actually suffered and died and resurrected. Farther than any prophet, including Jonah, has ever gone. Um, next slide for me. This is how Paul kind of says this. And this is kind of what we can... Um, I'm sorry. Well, there's that. Yeah, here we are. Um, this is how we can sort of contrast Jonah and Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You see, the difference between Jesus and Jonah was that um, it's, it's pretty simple. Oftentimes we consider ourselves much higher than we are, while Jesus made himself much lower than he actually was and deserved to be. We are man, and we are oftentimes acting like we are equal with God in the message that we proclaim. Um, we act like somehow we are deserving of the world's respect and that they would give us authority and that they would um, listen to our every word and do everything that we say. And that's not what Jesus did. He washed their feet. He served them. He met with the lowliest of the low. And he loved them and he worked from the bottom up. It's completely different than how Jonah was trying to do things. It's different from how we do things, honestly, most of the time. The only way to be free of our high view of self is to do what Jonah did and put our old selves and our old identity and our pride and our pious religion to death. To just say, look, I need to die. I really do. Myself, my identity, everything about me just toss me overboard. Because only then can God really, when I get out of the way, God can really do his thing. All right? The last thing that I want to point out in this passage before we take communion today is something that really bugs me. Um, it's Jonah never actually prayed for the sailors and the captains. Did you notice that? He never actually prayed for them. They actually were asking him to pray for them, and he didn't. All he did is talked about who he was, and they were begging him to do so. Now, if you were here last week, you're going to remember um, Sam, uh, when he gave uh, a time of prayer last week, to, uh, um, he was talking about how we are saved not for us, but for the world. Um, he read something by, I believe it was Henry Nouwen, um, which, which basically talked about how when we are saved, we, we oftentimes believe our salvation stops with us, and it should never do that. It is supposed to go out into the world and flow from everything that we do, every action, and oftentimes we consider ourselves um, as the ones who God was trying to save in the first place, but God has saved you if, you if you follow him and if you understand, if you are reconciled with God through Jesus, through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. You haven't been saved for your own good. You've been saved for the good of the kingdom, the good of the world. 
It's not about you. It's never about you. Jonah himself was saved for the salvation of Nineveh. Salvation was never supposed to end with you. You were to become a conduit of salvation. It's to flow through you into the world. And Jonah thought salvation was all about himself. And you see what the sailors at the end here, and this is what bothers me. Jonah wouldn't pray for them. And it says that they, were, they basically rebuked Jonah for, for not using his own faith for the good of those around him. And, and, and verse 6, the captain comes and wakes Jonah up and says, Arise and call out to your God. And how many times have we heard politicians during, during tsunamis or earthquakes or times of war or terrible times where the, the politicians get up and they say, If you believe in God, pray. If you're a religious person, pray. And I can't tell you how many times I've had this snarky thought in the back of my head. Oh, great, everyone's going to be praying to all kinds of whatevers. I was just asked to pray to a God who is above every other God that all these other people are crying out to and praying to. And I respond with a defense of who I am, Christianity, and how great I am, and how low they are. And it should never, ever be like this. The world was asking them to ask their God to step in. And I love the symbolism that he puts in the story here. Jonah is asleep and worrying about his own problems and fighting over theology and what God requires of him while everyone around him is crying out to every God imaginable for salvation. This is why we need a new Jonah. This is why we needed Jesus. Because this is how we react. Um, this is what I want us to focus on today as we, as we enter into the time of communion. Um, I want us to... Think about the ways that we have just been sleeping. I want us to contemplate and ask God to reveal to us ways that his gospel has been ready and willing to work to save people around us and, and, and to end these storms that are raging all around us. And we're spending so much time sleeping and thinking about our own problems and, and trying to better ourselves when the gospel... The gospel can do much more work to you if you're actually exercising it. You want to make yourself better? Exercise the gospel. Get it out. That'll change you. And so our communion servers are... Uh, um, why don't you guys go ahead and, uh, and get ready. And um, We take communion every single week here at Watermark. It's a, uh, it's, it's a very, very important time to us. Um, and like Jane talked about earlier, it's, it's something that is, that is vital to community. It, it's something that we do constantly to remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. Um, <clears throat> we take a piece of bread and, and we rip it off. The bread symbolizes the, the body of Christ. We, we dip it in a glass of wine and, and, and the wine represents the blood of Christ spilled for all of us and we eat it and we take it inside of us, the, the, um, uh, the symbolism of Christ dying on the cross and, and we sort of symbolize taking the gospel down inside of us and we contemplate on it and we say, Lord, I do this to remember what you did for me. This is the last thing that Jesus did before he was drug away and crucified for your sins. It's the last thing that he did with his disciples. Um, and it's something that he has asked us to continue doing. So every time we get together here for worship, we do this. So our communion service will come on up. We have four stations, two in the front and uh, two in the back. Um, take some time and talk to God. Um, ask him to reveal the things that you need to repent of, that you need to work on in light of what we have heard about the story of Jonah. Um, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you don't take communion. You don't understand what you're doing and um, the magnitude of it. Um, if you are a follower of Christ, please do. Take communion with us. You're our brother and sister, and, and uh, you don't have to be a member of our church or anything. So uh, we welcome you to that. So take some time. Talk to God, and let's pray. Father, we love you. You're a good God. You're a holy God.
we know that the world around us is um, it's in a bit of a storm itself. There are people suffering. There are people crying out for salvation and, and they're looking under every rock for the God that will save them. They're looking at every idea, every worldly philosophy, and they believe in these things, and they give worth to them, and they promote them as if they are a God. Lord, we know that if any work is to be done here, if things really are to be made better, it's not going to be by us, because we're the people that really screwed it up. We know that if work is going to be done, if, this, if the world is going to be redeemed, if people are going to be saved, if lives are going to be turned around, if marriages are going to be fixed, if families are going to be reunited and reconciled, it's going to happen because of your gospel. Not another earthly idea. Teach us to exercise it. Teach us to take it out there because oftentimes we're just asleep while people are suffering all around us, asking us to call out to our God. Teach us to do that. We love you, Father. I pray all of this in your name. Amen.